How grateful we are for Brother Kevin and all those that serve with him in missions and to all of you who give to go. You are a church planting church. I don't know if you know that, but you are, and you touch little the ends of the earth. Kevin is in the air most of the time flying to somewhere, back from somewhere, and many of you have accompanied him on many of those trips. We're very grateful for what's happening with the Armenian people and the door God's opening to that great people group. This morning, I'm glad you're here. We have several that are out on vacation, so I'm always glad in July when you're faithful, when you're in town to be in church. For you that may be guests with us, welcome today to First Baptist of Broken Era. My heart, like yours, has been touched this weekend by the tragedy in Branson. I think so many of us have been there once or twice or maybe an annual event that we feel like that's our backyard. How tragic that 17 people went out for an afternoon of relaxation with their family and 31 went out, 17 didn't come back. I don't know about you, but I could hear about 17 victims, and I'm sorry, but I don't really get deeply involved because I think, well, I don't know them. I did look up some of them, and it makes it a bit more personal. This morning, a church in Osceola, Arkansas, is sad because a young man, or a man 53 years old, Steve Smith and his son Lance, 15, both drowned when the boat went down. Family members said that the boat, that the, that the family had gone out for an outing and three members were on the boat. There was a precious daughter, 14, who decided she wanted to go with dad and her brother when they were going to ride the duck. Mama had gone into town to get some special bargains at one of the malls. She was not on board. Mother and daughter will be going home to their church where Steve was a deacon. They'll be in worship this morning, grieving the loss of their family. Nine members of one family you heard died. They were on vacation from Indianapolis. You might want to know that they were all members of Zion Tabernacle Apostolic Faith Church and highly active. An associate bishop said of them they just didn't miss. They were very active in the church and they loved their Lord. The duck driver was 73 years old. His name was Robert Bob Williams. He died Thursday at Table Rock Lake. He was an outstanding individual and one of the most humble people I've ever known, said a friend. He was known as Pastor Bob at the King's Cathedral in Providence, Rhode Island, a church where he started. And he'd served as the associate pastor and elder for more than a decade before he and his wife moved to Branson. That could have been you. Many of you vacationed there with your families. That could have been you we were reading about this morning, but for the grace of God. We want to pray today for the people of Branson. It's a small community, and they're there to make people laugh and have fun. They don't anticipate a tragedy. Pray for those people, those churches today. Many of those people in Branson are Christian, and they're going to church today say, Pastor, help me. I want to help those in the city, and I want to do what I can to help those who are grieving. Pray for these families, many from different parts of the United States, and I only read three different groups. There are many that were on that boat. Pray today for them. What this reminds me is there's a greater tragedy than a boat sinking. There's a tragedy of a culture that's sinking. And the end result of those who are not rescued by the blood of Jesus will not just perish from this life, but will perish forevermore. Some of those on the shore said we were so frustrated because we could not reach those who were going under. Some of those you know you could reach if you reach now. Some of those I know I could reach if I reach now. But if we don't reach them now, there is no second chance after death. These kind of reminders come to remind us of the brevity of life, the fragile nature of life, and the urgency to make sure everybody you know knows Christ. God help us to be rescuers. Pray with me, would you? Heavenly Father, today we are the blessed we know that very well. We're able to be in church. We, we got a good night's rest. We're here today. And though some may de- be dealing with a family member's loss, nothing of the magnitude of those in Branson where so many perished in one outing. We pray for the people there in that small community that so many go there to find a, an escape from the tragedies and the sorrows of life. And today that very location is the source and the location of a, of a tragedy Comfort the families, those who have perished, comfort their loved ones who remain. And for those who are shaken because they were on the boat and got away, I know that they too are shaken, thinking that could have been me. We pray today, God, for those who are struggling in life. They're far from the shore. They're in a sinking ship. They're going down because their life is away from Christ. 
remind us today of the urgency. We hold the life raft. We hold the good news. We hold the gospel. But if we keep it anchored our boat and we don't go out into the sea to share it, there are going to be people perish this week because we didn't care. God, forgive us. Forgive me. Forgive us all. Help us to be bold in witness, bold in Christ, bold in sharing. Pour out your spirit upon us this morning. That's why we've come. We've been blessed with his beautiful music, and we thank you for it. And we pray today that as we now look to the word of God, you'll feed our souls from the bread of heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 1. I'm very grateful today for the praise team that led us. As you uh, notice, Brother Kevin Price is out of town. We're grateful for Jason Parks and his stepping in to lead us. Uh, um, Kevin and his family are taking time to see their married son up in Minnesota. And we want to pray for them that they get some good R&R and come back to us soon. For some reason in the world in which we live, people in, in the church, I'm not talking about lost people, some reason in the church, there seem to be two groups of people now, and I don't know how that developed other than our own making. It's certainly not of God. There's the group that says, I believe Jesus Christ is Lord. He's a boss of me. He's a boss of my life. I'm going to serve him with everything in me. And then there are those who say, well, I didn't really receive him as Lord. I just received him as Savior. I, I want to go to heaven when I die, but now I don't think that needs to affect what I do on the earth because I think I can do what I want to, but I've been saved. I, I don't live like it. Nobody knows me to say he's a Christian, but I know in my heart I've been saved and I'm on to heaven. So what is your confession based upon? Oh, I believe in Jesus. That puts you at the level of a demon. The book of James says, you believe in God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I've not seen many Quaking Baptists lately. And when people say, I believe in God, or the man in me, or I'm okay with the man upstairs, that's blasphemy. You just said, I don't even know him. I, I don't dignify him even with calling him by his name. There's a group that says, I'm a, savior per- I'm a saved person. I just don't live under the Lordship. And there are those who understand that when you receive Christ as Savior, you receive him as Lord. It's not mutually exclusive. It's both and. Sadly... In the world in which we live, many of the world say, I have no use for the church because, and they're, they're right. I mean, I can't deny facts. Statistics show church people are in everything that the worldly people are, and neck and neck we run the same. Now, how can that be? When it comes to immorality, we're, we're at the same rate. When it comes to divorce, we're at the same rate. When it comes to alcohol and drug abuse, we're at the same rate. When it comes to pornography, we are at the same rate. When it comes to gambling, we are the same rate. How can that be? When even the scripture says the church is the ecclesia, the called out from the world, the different from the world. You're to be the salt that irritates the wound and light to take them out of darkness toward light. But if we're doing the same thing, going the same places, no wonder they don't see the need. Because they said, I was standing in line but with you. We sat at the same table as you. We were the same theater as you. We, we drank the same stuff you drank, smoked the same stuff you smoked. We were in the same divorce court you were. There's no difference. No wonder the world says, why do we need it? This passage we're about to study, and I'm going to ask Zach to put these slide, this slide or slides on the wall, because what we're about to see is a marvelous repetition of thoughts, but John parallels them, and if you don't see it in print, you may miss it. So let's look begin First John chapter 3, and you look at these slides. Zach, you got that for me? There it is. L- look at this right here. First of all, we're going to read a moment, First John 3, 4. It says, it's going to say, sin is serious because sin is rebellion against God. He's going to say the th- same thing in verse 8, verse, uh, chapter, <laughs> verse 8a. It says, sin is serious in verse 4 because it's rebellion. In 8a, it says, because it originates with Satan. Verse 5, it says, sin is opposed to Christ appearing to take away sin. Verse 8b, sin is opposed to Christ appearing to destroy the works of, a de- of the devil. Verse 6 says, a true Christian doesn't live in sin. Verse 9 said, a true Christian cannot live in sin. Verse 7 says, a true Christian practices righteousness. Verse 10, a true Christian practices righteousness and love. So you see the repetition. Why does John repeat? How do we learn? I say, how do we learn? I say, how do we learn? <laughs> Thank you. Here we go. Look, look, look at the text. First John chapter 3, beginning in verse... Let's just look at verse 2, and then we're going to go to 4 through 10. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, we are God's children now. Now, that, that ought to ring true to you who struggle with salvation. 
When did you become a child of God? The moment you asked Jesus to forgive you, to come into your heart and be the Lord of your life. When was it? Pastor, I was 9. Pastor, I was 13. Pastor, I was 26. Pastor, I was 60. When did you become a Christian? At that moment. So when did you get eternal life? At that moment, no. When did you get eternal life? At No. When did you get eternal life? From the moment you were created. Why? Everybody has eternal life because we're made in the image of God. The only difference is the closing address. So if you are now a child of God, your residency has been moved into the kingdom of God. You had eternal life. Everybody you know is going to live forever. Some will live forever in a city of light called heaven. Some will live forever in a kingdom of darkness forever separated. So here's what he says. Now you are, verse 2. Now we are the children of God and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears we'll be like him. Because we're going to see him as he is. And now this is what starts verse 4 through 10. Verse 3 is the transition verse. Everyone who has this hope. What hope? That you are a child of God. That you now belong to him. And when he appears, you're going to see him as he is. That's the hope. Everyone who has this hope in him, it purifies you. So why are the statistics the same for the church as the world? The Bible says when you have the hope of the fact that you're a child of God, everyone who, uh, everyone who has this hope purifies himself because you've come just like Christ who is pure. Verse, verse 3. Now let's look at the text for today. Verse 4, and you've seen the parallels. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law because sin is the breaking of the law. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sin. He might take away sins. And there is no sin in him. Who can take away your sins? The one who has none of his own. Verse 6. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him, nor do you know him. Verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as Christ is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil is sin from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy Crush, loose us from the devil's works. Everyone, verse 9, who has been born of God does not sin. Uh Uh-oh. Well, that's a a tough verse. Let's see that again. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Any of you here born again? Let's see your hand. You born again? Why are y'all reluctant? Y'all don't ever vote in church. Anybody here born again? Let's see your hand. Anybody here ever sin? Some of y'all not telling the truth. Is verse 9, does that say that in your Bible? Everyone who's been born of God does not sin. Because God's seed remains in him. This is really tough. God's seed remains in him. He's not even able to sin. Now, y'all born again, right? I'm not going to call you the altar. It's okay to say amen. Yes. Now, now, now all of you said we're born again. But all of us admitted we've sinned. Let me read verse 9 again. Just the last part is just tough enough. His seed remains in him. He is not able. Hmm. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. This is how God's children, devil children, are made evident. One's living in sin and one's living in righteousness. Well, I think we got some tough stuff to chew on today. What do you think? Here we go. First of all, the Bible says sin is inspired by the devil. We want to believe that they're little sins, little small sins, just, just little indiscretions, little weaknesses, not, not really sin, just a, little, just a little flaw. Everything that's not of righteousness is sin. James said the one who knows to do good and doesn't do it is sin. Anybody here know more than you're doing? You know better than what you're normally doing? Yeah, me too. So we're sinners. And yet he says here, everyone who commits sin, who lives in sin, who just habitually sins is a lawbreaker because sin is breaking the law. It literally means you're, you're living in lawlessness. Now, now how can that be? When you and I sin, it's as if there's no law that controls me. 
Nobody going to tell me what to do. I'm, I'm my own boss. That, that, that's lawlessness. It's called anarchy. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. Book of Judges. Everyone does what's right in his own eyes. You can't tell me what to do. That's sin. When I willfully, deliberately sin, I'm saying, God, you have no hold on me. I'll do what I want. That's lawlessness and ultimately blasphemy because I've taken God's name in vain because I said I'm a Christian. So he says, everyone who commits sin breaks the law. Sin is breaking the law. Everyone who commits sins of the devil because the devil sinned from the beginning. Verse 8. So what does that mean? When I sin, I'm in a deliberate revolt. I've put on the enemy's garb. I've said, God, I'm in your camp, but I'm going to be a spy. I don't want to dwell here. I'm just passing through. My real love is over there where I left. The Bible says when we're sinners, we're living against God. When we're continually living in sin, we've taken on the enemy's garb. Playing with sin shows a lack of understanding. We hear far too often in this generation, we hear of a young child or a young teenager playing with a gun and, and shoots and sometimes kills a dear friend that was just watching him play with a gun. See, we don't, we don't think sin will kill us because it looks so good. Sin's always packaged to look good. Why? Because it appeals to that, which makes us like Eve. It looked good for food. I think it'd be tasty. I, I want it. If temptation didn't look good, you wouldn't be tempted. So, so the Bible says when I, when I willfully sin, I don't understand how dangerous it is. Years and years ago, when I was a seminary student, my dad and mom were in Fort Worth for a season, took Janine and I down to Brownwood, Texas, to a rattlesnake roundup. I just went once. Those people are certifiably crazy. If you're from there, God bless you for getting out when you could. You ever been to a rattlesnake roundup? Are they not nuts? They had a guy getting there, and there were, there were those, I mean, they're so loud rattling. You're standing there talking, and you can barely hear. I mean, they're just rattling, and there's a whole pit, I mean, a big, a big container of them. And this guy got in there with them. I, I really was concerned about his sanity. And then he get in amongst them and show you could slip your feet and move them around. And I'm thinking, buddy, you about to die right now on the spot. And he'd pick them up two at a time, let them stand out straight and show how strong they were in their I'm thinking, I have never seen anybody with less understanding. And after he'd finished this show, as if he hadn't terrified us enough, when he took his bow, he took off his cowboy hat and coiled on top of his head was a rattlesnake. That's what I thought right there. That's what I thought. Somewhere he lacked understanding. What do you think? I know two kinds of snakes, living and dead. I prefer the latter. The problem with sin is we want to play with it like he's playing with rattlesnakes. It won't bite me. It won't hurt me. I, I, I'm smarter than y'all got caught. It's not going to get me. Oh, my. See, some want to facilitate sin. God wants us to forsake it. So I want to continue in it. And God says, I, I want you to confess it and get it out of your life. Some people want to court its favor, and Christ took it to the cross to crucify it. So much of today's preaching is, is not, it's not about sin. In fact, many churches say we don't talk about sin. Hmm. We, we don't mention sin because we don't want to offend people. Hmm. That's like getting a doctor says, now if you were to ever have heart disease, cancer, tuberculosis, AIDS, I, I won't tell you because I don't want to offend you. Isn't that a good doctor? Isn't that a good doctor? No, he didn't, he didn't hurt your feelings. He didn't tell you bad news. He never made you cry. Truth is, much of what we hear today from pulpits is how to have a happier life, how to be a better me, and how to have a stronger love of me. I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about self. False teachers always minify sin. They focus on the things like God loves you. He, I'm here to affirm you. You're God's favorite the philosophy is let's just have a gospel compromise. Today's world says, now, now you come down too hard on sin. I don't think I come down as hard as the world did on Jesus. Do you? You think God kind of snickers at sin? Have you, have you read about a crucifixion? You think God finds sin kind of amusing like a grandparent watching his grandchild? You really think God just joking about the wages of sin is death? 
that's the philosophy now. We want to say, well, you know, here's the problem. God didn't, you need to tone it down about God's holiness. He's really, he's probably not as judgmental as you think. My God wouldn't do that. There's the problem, the first pronoun. Your God probably wouldn't. But I'm not worshiping your God's imitation. I'm worshiping the God of Revelation who's recorded in Scripture. And so people say, well, I don't think you should say that God is so judgmental. Really, God is love, and, and we're really not really bad as we think we are, as, as you say we are. We're really good at heart. Really, the Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I don't know if I'm going to go with the cardiology judgment of the world or the cardiology judgment of God, but I tend to go with God's assessment. People so often say, if I, if I know my heart, you don't know your heart. You don't know your heart. And that's why when we shudder, we shudder when we think of those who have been, those who have been arrested for some crime. We think, goodness, at that intersection in my life, I was this close. You... See, sermons on sin always offend because we're all sinners. That's why it's universally obnoxious. We don't want to hear it. I don't like to preach it. Attempt is attempt, attempt, the attempt today is to make God like us. And so we want to play, Let, let's make a deal. God, you don't press on holiness and we'll try to do better. There are no deals. See, the Bible says Christ came to take away sin and to destroy. Did you see that? Look at everyone, it says in verse 4, everyone who commits sin is a lawless person. Because we know the law of God. It says sin is the breaking or living or the doing of lawlessness. Now verse 5. So why did Christ come? You know that he was revealed. He came to the world so he might take away sins and so that there might there is and because of that there's no sin in him how, how can he take my sin he didn't have any so, see the truth is your mate loves you i hope your your mate loves you but your mate one day before god cannot say lord put all of my mate's sins on me and let her let her go sinless I, he said that'd be fine but we got to deal with yours and she's got to deal with hers I can't take Janine's sins and she can't take mine. I can't take Josh's and he can't take mine or Jody's. And I can't take any of my family's. He said, we got to deal with you and you're a sinner. But Jesus is the sinless son of God who could have stood in heaven and looked God face to face and said, I have no sin. He'd been telling the truth. If I stood before God and said, I have no sin, I'd continue to be a sinner. And he said, well, we just added lying to what your other stuff you've done because that is not true. And so the Bible teaches us when I live in sin, we forget the fact that Jesus came to take away the sins of the world. We can't change what he came to do. We need to accept it. There are several points that every Christian ought to know. When somebody says, what is it really in essence? What did Jesus came? How did he come? What did he come to do? He was born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He was arrested for something he did not say or do. He was arrested because his righteousness offended unrighteousness. And the Bible says he was crucified. He took on himself all the sins of the world. He lived a sinless life, was tried and found guilty of righteousness, put on a cross. And even the man crucifying said, the centurion crucifying said, he indeed, this indeed is a righteous man. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He rose from the dead after three days. He ascended to heaven and he's about to come back for those that are his. That's non-negotiable. That's who he is. But the truth is, we forget that he came to take away, take away. He came to take away our sin. Most of us say, I don't want you to take it away. I really like it. In fact, I kind of feed it. I pay good money to get it. I, I, don't, I don't want to let it go. I got a lot invested in this sin. In fact, we're going on vacation soon, and we're going to go indulge in some of that sin. Don't anybody here admit that, but that's true too often. In our house, Tuesdays and Fridays, there's a white truck the city sponsors comes through and picks up garbage. And I normally bless them with several bags can you imagine me after the garbage man comes at whatever time he comes in the morning? Let's say I'm staying home one morning and I'm doing some reading or something. I hear the garbage truck. And just about the time hey, they throw all that in there and move the house next, I, move to the next house down, I'm running there. Stop, stop, oh, stop, please. I want that back. 
Please don't take those dirty plates. Please give me back those cups. I don't want those horrible dispensers or deodorant to be carried off. Let me have them back. You'd say, your cheese slid off your cracker. Do you know anybody has been forgiven that runs after their sin? Could I have a testimony? Do you know what anybody said? I let Jesus take away my sin, but I've been chasing the garbage truck for years because I just don't want to let it go. If I look foolish chasing a garbage truck down the street, do you not look somewhat absurd chasing the one who took your sin from you saying, I'd like to get that back, please? He came to take away. He's buried it in the sea of his forgetfulness. He removes it to be remembered no more. As far as the east is from the west, it's gone. He nailed it to the cross to be remembered never again. Why would you say, can I please dabble in that again? That that doesn't sound right, does it? Everyone remaining in him, he says. Verse 6, everyone who remains in him. Verse 6, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or know him. Everyone who remains in him. And here's the picture. Everyone who remains in him cannot keep on sinning. What does that mean? Now here's where we could have some testimonies. Once you're a Christian... If you truly have been changed by Christ, what grieves you? Pastor, I'm doing some things that I just have the hardest time getting out of my life. They're old habits, and they will not, no matter what I do, I just can't seem to get rid of them. And I'm grieving. It kills me. I come to church, and all I see is my sin. I get down to pray, and all I see is my sin. And I, I want to go witness to somebody. And, and Satan says, who are you to tell anybody anything? I know you. What's the difference when you're born again? You hate your old sin nature. And every day of your life, when it raises its head, you want to do everything you can to crush it. But the pull is strong. Each time you feed it, it gets strength. Each time you reject it, it gets just a tad weaker. If you reject it long enough, Satan will come at a different angle. Why? You've got a long marathon ahead, and he knows every twist and turn is going to be waiting for you. And when you think, even the Bible says, Let him who thinks he's got it made, let him who's proud beware, lest you fall. I'll tell you right now, I've conquered that sin. It's not going to get me. Oh, be careful, be careful. Bigger trees than you have fallen in the forest of eternity. The Bible says here, when we really remain in him... We want fellowship with him, not with Satan. We desire relationship as a child of God, not with Satan. We want to be connected to Christ like the branch to the vine. We want to abide in him. It means the equivalent of being born of God. Once we're born again, this Holy Spirit convicts us. Isn't that miserable? Don't you hate it when you've done something, said something, thought something, been somewhere you shouldn't? And the Holy Spirit just begins to work on you. Aren't you miserable till you confess it and get it right? You said no, well then you are in trouble. Because if you override conscience long enough and your conscience is seared, you're not free. You're spiritually dead. The person says, I don't feel bad about that. Well, don't brag about it. That doesn't mean you're closer to being perfect. That means you're seared, you've seared your conscience so badly that now conviction doesn't come. I know it sounds strange. Maybe it's because I got more looks than you did. But occasionally when I'm thinking about church or reading a certain text. I don't know why, but I'll be reading a certain devotional text and I can see my daddy in the pulpit stopping and pointing at me. I shudder. I'm 66 years old. He's been dead 10 years. But I can remember once the sermon in Humboldt, Tennessee, he'd stop and <laughs> when it got quiet, I started listening. Because I knew most often he was looking at me and when I got out, I was under law, not judge, not grace. Anybody here? Isn't it miserable when you feel guilt? Isn't it miserable when you've wronged somebody and you're doing your best? You can't wait to see them and you hate seeing them. You need to see them to confess it. And you dread the appointment. And then it's a sweet thing when you finally can confess and two people reunite in friendship and bury the sin and the, and the fellowships restored. The Bible says when you come to Christ, He is faithful and just. Isn't that good? He is faithful and just to cleanse us, forgive us and cleanse us from our sin. Satan's a master of deception. 
Some of you here are pretty good deceivers. In fact, some of you are really good deceivers. Lots of times on Saturdays or weekends or summertime, you you got one of those real nice bass boats with a depth finder and a live well and all that equipment and all that stuff. Have you ever figured out how much how much bass costs per pound that you catch? <laughs> a lot. You get in that boat and y'all are the most you are children of the devil, you fishermen. You deceive those fish pitifully. You put a little lure on there. You know it's not lunch. You know it's not good for his diet. In fact, you've got a hook in it saying, I'm going to get you. you. You have malice in your heart. And the minute you load that lure on that line and toss it out there in that hole where those bass are, you say, I'm going to get me one. You have no repentance. You have no guilt, no shame. I'm going to deceive me a five-pounder today if it kills me. And the minute that fish hits that hook, you don't say, oh, I'm so sorry I led you into deception. (laughs) You say, hot dog, get the camera. This is a good one. Where did you learn that? From your father. (laughs) Don't look innocent. How many times has Satan dabbled it right in front of you? You think he feels bad when you bite the hook? He doesn't care about you. You mean nothing to him. He hates your father. And when he can snare you in one of his hooks in total deception, he says, gotcha. And you hate the moment he pulls you in, realizing how stupid can I be? Satan set himself up against God. If you remember in Isaiah chapter 14, though it's written about the king of Tyre, Isaiah 14, chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, Isaiah 14, 12 to 14, most people believe is really a picture of the fall of Satan. Well, let me just read it to you. You can check it out when you get home. Isaiah 14 says this, shining morning star. What does the Bible say of Satan? He can appear as an angel of light. Shining morning star, Isaiah 14, 12. How you have fallen from the heavens. You destroyer of nations, you've been cut off to the ground. You said to yourself, I'll ascend to the heavens. I'll set up my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit on the mount of the God's assembly. I'll, in the remotest parts of the north, I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high five times. I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne. I will sit on the mount of God's assembly. I will ascend to the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What's sin? S-I-N. It's I trouble. Because in the heart of sin is always that letter, ah. And when our desire is super, superseded by God's, when our desire is greater than God's will, supersedes God's will, we're in trouble. I want us to look at this troublesome verse 9 very quickly. Here's what it says. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He's not able to sin because he's been born of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, I can give you several solidified, solid commentary writers that tell and agree on the same thing. But, but let me give you the, the word here. It says the seed of God. God has put his seed in his children. Now, now the, we're adults here, so I'm going to just I'm gonna teach Greek in an adult version. You have the sperma theo in you. You know what sperm is. The Greek word for seed is sperma. We get our word sperm from it. God said you have the seed, the sperma of God, the sperma theos is in you. When you became a child of God, God planted his nature, his seed, his plan, he put in you. Now think with me. This is really profound. Really, this about we're gonna go real deep. A human baby goes up to be what? A human being, very good class. A human baby grows up to be what? Human being, very good. A little puppy grows up to be what? No kidding. A, a little a little calf grows up to be what? Very good. Hundred percent class. So if, you have the, if you're a child of God with the seed of God in you, when you mature, you're going to be what? A child of God mature. 
So when the Bible says you cannot sin, it means your nature is not to live in darkness. Your nature is not to follow Satan. Your nature is not to be bound by demons. Your nature is not to live in defeat. Your nature is not to be discouraged. Your nature is not to live in the doldrums of defeat. Your nature is to be victorious because God put his stamp on you, his spirit in you. Yea, even his seed is in you. You ought to kind of get excited. So when I sin, and I enjoy it, and I live in it, and I dwell in it, and I slop around in it, maybe I ought to check to see, maybe I ought to check, maybe I ought to check to see, is his sperma really in me, or did I just have a little emotional quiver? Did I just have a momentary lapse of old sin nature because I was afraid I'm going to get caught? And I, after I went down the aisle, I didn't get caught. I went right back. He says, when you grow up to be what your sperm put in you made you to be, it's verification you are. When a child is born to a family and they hold that little baby, they don't think, you know, someday we're going to have a prize show horse here. You say, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. No, the dumbest thing is when a person says, I'm a Christian. Now I live like Satan. And I dwell where Satan dwells. And I delight in doing Satan stuff. And I talk like my mouth is a furnace from hell. But I prayed. I'm, I'm in. The Bible says the seed of God is not in you. I, I didn't say it. Let, let's read that one more time. Verse 9. Everyone who's been born of God doesn't sin because the sperma theos of God, the seed of God, remains. It, it's taken up. He's, he's born of it. He's not able, meaning he's not happy. You put, you put a fish up here on the platform, how long is he going to live? You put a fish outside of water, lame on this platform, how long is he going to live? Not long. Why? He wasn't made to live in the air. Uh, in, on the land. His habitat is sea. When you can live and dwell and have a great time living for Satan, don't, 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 don't profess what you don't possess. When you say, I've sinned and I hate myself, Brother Nick, I, I don't know why I just keep doing it. Well, let's see if anybody... Reckon anybody ever had your dilemma? Turn with me in Romans just a minute. Now, I'm going to read from the Living Bible. I don't often read from it, but... This one's too good not to. You need to see this. Because some of you say, well, then I just don't know why. I just I seem to keep tripping over the same thing. Because many of us were in sin so long, we have what CR calls a hang-up or a habit that holds us and keeps us grounded and away from what God wants us to be soaring. Romans chapter 7. By the way, Paul the Apostle is the author. Pretty good Christian, Paul. 13 letters of the New Testament. Traveled all the known world. Pretty good good Christian, Paul was. Then I'm going to be confused by his testimony because he's going to talk about two natures. And if you can't relate to this, then I can't help you. Romans chapter 7, verse 15. I'm reading from the Living Bible, so it may be a little different. But the text is the same. This is just a paraphrase. I don't understand myself at all. For I really want to do what's right, Romans 7.15 says. I want to do what's right, but I can't. I do what I don't want to, and it's what I hate. Now, this is Paul. (laughs) Paul, who wrote this very letter. Verse 16, I know perfectly well that what I'm doing is wrong. My bad conscience proves I agree with these laws I'm breaking. But I can't help myself. That's Paul? Hmm. I can't help myself because I'm no longer doing it. It's sin inside me that's stronger than I am that makes me do these evil things. I know I'm rotten through and through as far as my whole nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to do right, but I can't. Verse 19, when I want to do good, I don't. When I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. Now, if I'm doing what I don't want to do, it's plain where the problem is. Sin still has me in its evil grasp. This is Paul the Apostle writing to Rome. Verse 21. Seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do, when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what is wrong. 
I love to do God's will so far as my new nature is concerned, but there's something deep within me in my lower nature. So Paul said, I have two natures warring for victory within me. One is the righteousness of God. The other is a lower sinful nature. I'm doing everything I can to surrender to God, to let him squelch it and kill it. He says in verse 23, something else deep within me in my lower nature that's at war with my mind. Anybody here want to give you testimony? The things I think turn the room blue. He says, this is at war with my mind and wins the fight and makes me a slave to the sin that's still within me. In my mind, I want to be God's servant. But instead, I find myself still enslaved to sin. So you see how it is. My new life tells me to do right. But that old nature, that sin nature that's still inside me loves to sin. What a terrible predicament I'm in. Who will free me from my slavery to this deadly lower nature? And then it's as if he took the pen out of the writer's hand. You know, Paul had an amanuensis, a man who copied as he wrote. I said, Paul took the pen and said, give me that. And he took a poster board and wrote in bold letters, thank God. It has been done through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has set me free. The Bible says he came to take away our sin nature and destroy the works of the devil. What is a righteous man? Well, we don't have time to look at all of it, but here's some marks just real quickly. The Bible says a righteous man is an humble man. Why? Because left to our nature, we're always in sin. A righteous man says, if I have anything good in me, thank Christ. What you see that's bad in me, pray for me. A righteous man's an humble man. Paul would write in Philippians 2, let each person, let each Esteem the other person better than themselves. Why? Every one of you here are better in some aspect of life than I am. Many of you, most of you are better in every aspect because of your dedication. The Bible says, listen, we have no room to boast. Isaiah chapter 57, God said, I will dwell with him also that's of an humble spirit. Secondly, a righteous man is devoted to the holiness of God. The evidence present in a righteous man is that he's not only washed from sin, but he has an inward sanctity, a holiness. It is said a good Christian is God's temple. What does that mean? Here's the outward appearance. Have you ever seen pictures of the temple in Israel in the heyday? It was beautiful. White marble, gold. God says you're the temple. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is the external appearance. So with what I do with this, does it matter? Oh my. So, so if, this is the, if this is the external appearance of the temple, what, what's the holy of holies? Christ in you. Who indwells you? The Holy Spirit of the living God. So look what he says. Secondly, a, a righteous man only devoted to holiness and not as humble. But thirdly, a righteous man is just in all that he does. He doesn't want to be deceptive. He doesn't seek to cut a deal knowing I've cheated you. He doesn't want to lie. He's sure not going to be unfaithful to his spouse. He wants to love his children. A righteous man serves God out of the principle of love. Now, now I, you all know how I have a proclivity of being ugly. I'm really good at it. But I want to read a passage to show you the difference between a righteous man and an unrighteous man. Carnal man says in Malachi chapter 1 verse 13, what a weariness it is to serve the Lord. You ever have people say, I'm not going down that church. It wears me out every week. I don't want to be down there. What have they just said? I don't know him. I have no desire to be a part of his body. What a weariness. Malachi, you can look it up for yourself. Malachi 1 13, what a weariness it says. It is to serve the Lord. But what's the difference between that man and a godly man? I delight, it says in Romans 7, I delight in the law of God that dwells in the inner man. A righteous man perseveres in his faith. It's not always easy, but you don't quit. You keep pressing on. Have you ever seen a dead fish swim upstream? Me either. 
Dead fish just go with the flow. We don't want to create a stir. We don't want to offend anybody. We're not going to do anything to trouble anybody. We just, we just hit it for the flow. We just kind of go with the flow. If it goes south, we just go south. But we, we're not going to stir the boat. We don't want to make a ripple. We're not, we're not going to make white water. We just go go with the flow. Yeah, that's a dead fish. Anybody can float with the flow that heads out to destruction. We need some people maybe swim upstream. What do you think? To get back to a place of holiness and righteousness. Can I read one other verse to you and then i got to quit. we got to get you to Sunday school. Look at John chapter 3 real quickly. You know this passage. When we get to verse 16, I'm not going that far. So, so if I have an old sin nature, what do I need? I need to be born differently. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, it says. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. So I need a different birthday. Look at Romans chapter 3. Excuse me, John chapter 3. There was a man... I don't think that's I don't think that's just in there to say he was a Pharisee and male gender. I think it says this took great courage because he's a ruler of the Pharisees uh, of the Sanhedrin. He gets caught. He's not only in trouble with Sanhedrin, maybe he may be thrown out, maybe stoned for supporting man they saw as blasphemous. This was man's man. It was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know you come from God as a teacher. No one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. John 3, verse 3. Jesus replied, I assure you, unless one is born again. Hmm. So there's not a sinful Christian and a saved Christian. There's a lost man and one who's been born again. Because Jesus said, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said, I I don't know what you're saying. Verse 4, how how can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked, can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus said, I assure you, unless someone is born of water, what happens when a woman says, I'm about to give birth, her water breaks? Now, some say that's baptism. No, he's going to talk about a natural birth and a spiritual birth. When a woman's water breaks, that baby's about to be born. You were in water for nine months. That's a mystery in itself. And the minute you come out, you're an air-breathing human. He says, unless you're born of the water, unless you had a physical birth, and then that second birth, born of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. Verse 6, whatever's born of the flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed. I told you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And even Nicodemus said, how can these things be? Do you know 2,000 years later, people just said, I just don't understand that. You've heard the gospel how many times? The Bible says if you're born once, you're going to die twice. If you're born in the flesh, you're going to die the flesh. You're going to die eternally separated from God. That's called the second death. You're born once, you're going to die twice. But if you're born twice, born as a man or woman, and then born as a child of God, you're going to die one time. For when that moment comes and God calls you, you don't leave the land of the living to go to the land of the dead. You're leaving the land of those perishing in sin to go to be with God in eternal life. Which nature? I got to quit. Here, one, one picture. Oh, goodness, I got to quit. Here we go. One picture. What's the difference between a sheep and a pig besides shape? You ever seen a sheep out area out in the pasture? If they get near a mud puddle, they may step in the edge of it by accident, but they'll back back out because they don't they don't like they don't like mud. A sheep may step in a muddy place they don't see, but they're gonna back out because they don't they don't they don't want mud on them. But you ever seen a pig? I don't care if it's prize winning at the fair. You take that blue ribbon off that pig and you throw that pig in a place with a mud hole, what's that pig going to do? And get right down there in it, aren't they? And love every minute and wallow up to its snout and roll over again and roll over again. Why? Because the nature of pig, I love dirt. nature of a sheep is, I can't stand it. 
what nature are you? You're really bored being here, can't wait to get out so you can get back to what you really want to be? Or are you rather today saying, dear God, I hate the dirt that's on me because of the heart that's in me. I confess to you, I want to be more like you. Please, clean me up, take me in, lead me home. Your preachers preach through the invitation. I didn't realize that. I got wrapped up. So here's what I'm going to do. In a minute, we're going to just stand and pray. We stand to pray. We're not going to have a song, so anybody here to lead us in singing, don't, don't have instruments because I've got to get you to Sunday school. But here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the pastors to make their way here when we stand to pray. Some of you came today and said, I need to make a commitment to Christ. Some of you through the sermon have realized, I need to make a commitment to Christ. Now listen, we may be running a little late, but I'd rather be late and you get in the kingdom and get things right with God than to leave on time and you leave lost. We're going to take time to do what we need to do. The most important moment in a church is what's about to happen. And that's to give people an opportunity to get right with God. Some of you here say, Brother Nick, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. That, that's why I keep going back to sin. I'm not a Christian. Then I'm going to ask you without singing of a song, when I say let's pray, while I'm praying, don't head that way, head this way. Some of you say, I came today to join the church. You come. Some say, I just need to repent. I need to ask Christ to help me. Then you come. The best of my knowledge, I've preached what I, God gave me. But now the question is, what are you going to do with that lower sinful nature? Kill it. Feed it. Confess it. Let Christ crucify it. And what are you going to do with that righteousness? I pray, let Christ nurture it. So that one day you'll grow to be a mighty man and woman of God. So that he can say, that one's mine. And well done. Stand with me. We're going to pray. You need to come. You come. We're not singing. If you're coming, come right now. Pastors, if you're in the room, make your way to the front. Father, thank you today for this text. It is filled with truth. And sometimes the truth is painful. And that's true today because all of us are sinners, including the one speaking. None of us are perfect. None of us are without sin. And when we read, person born of God cannot sin, we want to say, well, then I'm not sure I'm born of God because I sure said something that wasn't very nice and I think things are not very good. I've been known to do things that I'm not real proud of. But what you mean is if you really are a child of God, we don't delight in living in the mud like a pig. We may step in a puddle, but we're going to get out of it because we don't like it in there. God, I pray today we'll be able to see sin for what it is, ugly and killing. And we'll see Christ for what you are, loving, merciful, sacrificial, and willing to pay sin's penalty for us. And I pray today not one person on the sound of my voice would leave this room without Jesus. Now, while we're standing here in a moment of silence, you say, Brother Nick, I I need to make a commitment to Christ. You come real quickly. We're not going to sing. I'm not going to make long appeals. I'm going to give you the opportunity to be obedient. Pastor, I need to make a commitment to Christ. I need to join the church. I want to come for repentance. Very quickly, if you're coming this way, come now.